Well, it is good to have you here this morning. It is good to be with you this morning. I was a bit under the weather last week, so special thanks to Tim for filling in for me. I think he's here somewhere. There he is, hiding back in the middle there. So thank you very much, Tim, for filling in for me last week. Uh, Looking forward to uh, Tim and Jeremy, a couple of the guys who speak in our student ministry regularly, uh, participating in this series with me a little bit later in the summer. So uh, they'll be a part of this a little bit later in the summer as well. Also, just want to highlight for those of you that might have not have been here on Memorial Day weekend, but uh, Tim Van Dalen introduced uh, to our church what we're calling our Summer of Generosity, um, opportunities for us to bless individuals um, and ministries uh, with, act, with gifts of generous giving above what we normally give. And so this, this month, we're contributing to the church that we partner with in Haiti. We'll have a group of students going down there uh, next month and... If you would like to learn more about that, if you aren't, don't receive our Slice of Life, which is our weekly email newsletter, you can sign up for that on the back of your communication card. Just check that box, and we'll get information to you guys on a regular basis about that. Um, but also, um, so this month, we're going to be giving to the ministry there in Haiti, and uh, would encourage you to, you can either give online or just note that, SOG, Summer of Generosity, dash Haiti Church. Then next month, what we're going to do is we're going to give towards a local ministry, uh, Rod Redkay's ministry, uh, the Real Life Community Services, they're renovating the Denver House. For those of you that are in Denver, you know what we mean by the Denver House. And uh, he'll be here with us next month to tell a little bit more about that. And then in August, one of the couple from our church that we'll introduce you to who's planning to head to the mission field, and we want to partner with them as well. So just opportunities for you to be generous. You guys are generous in amazing ways. We are so grateful for that. But God says, I want you to be generous not only um, with your finances, but also in good deeds. So those are some things that are taking place and coming up this summer. On the stage with me is Leah Bias, one of our our young adults. And uh, she is here with us to share a little bit about an experience she had just two months ago, right? And so, um, Leah, for those who weren't here with us, would you refresh our memories? Just tell us where you went and what the purpose of your experience was. I was in a small village um, called Katui in, the, in Kenya, Africa. Um, we were working with um, the Katui Baby Home as well as the Mulango Children's Home. Um, the purpose of our trip was not to do a project um, or um, help them out necessarily, but just to work, to work alongside the staff, build relationships with the kids that we sponsor as well as the staff who take care of them. So the children's home and the orphanage, these are kids that have been abandoned? Is that, would that be accurate? Uh, some, are, some are abandoned. Some have family that just can't take care of them. Some are true orphans. Okay. So this was the second time you'd been there before. So tell us a little bit, what impacted you? In the first time, you know, everything's kind of new. Uh, it's a new place, new experience, new setting. So second time, you know all those things. What impacted you the second time? When I was there before, we, um, the, the ministry that I'm involved with, 5810, didn't actually um, sponsor the Katui Baby Home. So when I was there before, we had just spent an hour there. Um, and this time we got to actually spend like a full day. We saw the, the morning routine, getting them up, devotions, breakfast, school, lunch, mm-hmm. um, pretty much through the afternoon. Um, so it was just amazing to me. At the Molongo Children's Home, the kids are older, and um, the staff doesn't have to be as attentive as you do with zero to five-year-olds, um, newborns to five-year-olds. So it was just amazing to me to watch them. You know, they're there. The nursemaids are there 24-7. They have to have constant care. They can't really do much for themselves. Um, one of the things that, that really impacted me 
at the baby home. Um, my friend Winnie is the director there, and she just really cares for the whole child, not just their physical needs, which are obvious, but their spiritual and emotional needs as well. Um, one quick story. They, back in the fall, they had rescued, um, I think she was probably two weeks old, a two-week-old baby from the bush. She had been abandoned. Um, the neighbors heard her crying and um, took her to the police, and the police brought her to the baby home. Um, she was described as the star of the home, uh, everyone's favorite, just happy all the time. Everybody wanted her to have the best of everything. Um, she was doing really well, and then in March, um, she got sick. They took her to the hospital, and a few days later, she passed away. Um, she, as Winnie was telling this story, um, you know, she was, this baby was everything to the kids, to the outsiders, to the staff, um, and she said that, you know, the day that that this baby had passed away, her husband, who is a local pastor, um, you know, was alongside the staff and just said, said to them, grieve. You have to grieve. You have to cry. You have to, you have to grieve her. But know that this baby died loved. She died with dignity. She died in the arms of someone who cared for her. Um, she was not, she didn't die in the bush with no one around, abandoned. Um, and that just, that just really touched me because we as sponsors here in the U.S., we know that we're doing a good thing. We're sending money. These kids are being taken care of, and that's important, and it's needed. But the staff who are there the day in and the day out, and just, you know, they're doing the hard work. They're the boots on the ground. They're the ones who are taking the emotional toll mm-hmm. um, on themselves. And I think that it was just a good reminder for me that while we're, what we're doing is good, these kids would not survive without the staff. So you, so all the kids that are in the children's home and the orphanage are all sponsored by individuals here in the states. Yes, um, all of the children at the children's home are sponsored. Um, they do it a little bit differently at the baby home. Um, they do what they call crib sponsorships okay. um, because sometimes it's just a baby needs a place to go until the mom can get back on her feet okay. or something like that. Okay. So how would you say God worked through your team? Um, I think you have a picture of your team that we can put up on the screen. How did God work through your team in this experience? Yeah, it was, it was a small team. Usually 5810 takes a team of 12 to 14 people over, and this time there were just seven of us. Half of us had already been there before and mm-hmm. kind of knew what to expect. Um, I think for, for those that had not been there before and were meeting their children for the first time, um, actually my cousin Tim and his wife Megan were on the trip. Um, they have three little boys here, and they sponsor three children mm. at the Milongo Children's cool. Home. Um, when they first started sponsoring, they, it was a brother and sister, Mulatia and Queen, and um, just the beginning of this year, their younger brother, Kimani, came to the home, and so they were like, we definitely have to sponsor him too. Mm. Um, and it was amazing just to see them form a family. I mean, these kids don't have parents. Their parents had died. Mm. Um, Kimani had just come to the orphanage and out of a really traumatic experience, um, and they just clung to them. Like, like the, these, Megan and Tim were their, are their parents, they're their family. Mm. Um, and the same experience for the, for the others who were meeting their kids for the first time. But I think that just stood out to me because you just don't realize like how important 
the sponsorships are hmm. to the kids. Hmm. I think you said earlier that um, the only people that go on these trips are people that sponsors because the goal is relationship. Right. right? Yeah. Our purpose is not um, to go and to necessarily do something, but it's to build relationships. And so the only people that are invited on these mission trips are people who are already involved with the ministry because they're not, 5810 is not looking to create an experience for someone. They're looking to build relationships. Okay. That's cool. So you went on this trip the beginning of April, mm -hmm. and you've had about two months to process it. So um, tell us what's God stirring in you as you've come back and have just kind of sat with and processed the experience a little bit. I'm about to get real honest with you here. <laughs> um, I, the first time I went, everything was new, and it was exciting, and um, I felt very fulfilled. And on missions trips, a lot of times, you kind of ride these emotional highs and that didn't happen this time and it's not that I regretted going it's not that if you were to like here I'll pay for you to go tomorrow I'd be there in a heartbeat probably quit my job <laughs> but um but I just really wrestled with why don't I feel fulfilled why don't I feel satisfied why like what am I doing here and I I really as I came home was praying about it and said God just move in me like what was the point of this and he kept taking me back to um Pastor Meshach's words when he when we first arrived in Kenya the first day we were there Meshach said you know I know that it costs you to come here it costs you money it costs you time it costs you time away from your families and your jobs and people might ask is it worth it why don't you just send the money and he says it's and he said it's worth it we are so encouraged by our brothers and sisters who come from the US we want you here. We want you to come see us. We want you to come see your kids that you sponsor, and it's worth it. And I feel like God just kept bringing me back to that because why do, my questions were, why don't I feel fulfilled? Why don't I feel satisfied? And maybe it wasn't about me mm -hmm. this time. Maybe mm -hmm. it was truly about going and being an encouragement to my brothers and sisters mm -hmm. in Kenya. Well, thanks for sharing that, Leah, and thanks for just being your openness to kind of sense uh, just this longing for God to show up and just being persistent with that even afterwards yeah. and for God to make that really clear for you. So, um, so the organization, I think, is going to come up. The website's going to come up on the screen, 5810. Um, just tell us real quickly about the organization. Um, it was started by three single guys in their 20s, which... Um, uh, that's unusual in and of itself um, in this day and age. And who just really had a heart to do something. Um, and they partnered with a ministry in, in the Philadelphia area called Chariots for Hope and um, reopened um, the Mulongo Children's Home and then um, later went on to also sponsor the, the Katui Baby Home. Um, like I said, that it's really about relationships. They, um, you know, we believe that ending poverty is really a relational issue mostly um, in restoring relationships. Um, and um, yeah, we just, it, it's a great organization. If you go to the website, um, all of the kids at the Milongo Children's Home um, are sponsored, which is fantastic. Um, mm -hmm. 170 kids are being taken care of. Um, but they do still need sponsorships, um, crib sponsorships for the baby home. You can do a half crib, which is $25 a month, and or a full crib, which is $50 a month. And, um, you know, I sponsor a crib, and it's just amazing to see the work that God is doing there. Would you thank Leah for sharing her story and her heart with us today? So thanks, Leah. Appreciate it. You know, it's amazing how our minds can look at a picture or look at an experience and draw conclusions about it. And yet later, 
with time, or someone else can offer a different perspective, a different way of looking at the same exact thing. It's not uncommon for me to come home and for me to have a conversation with my wife and be absolutely convinced that my way of viewing things is the right way, is the, the, the best way, the most accurate way, probably the only way, um, only to suddenly discover in the course of the conversation that she offers a different perspective on the situation. No surprise to you. But um, um, I read an article recently that said this, that said, husbands who listen, consider, and even accept their wives' viewpoint will have a happier marriage. Some of you guys are thinking, no, duh, John. What did it take you so long to figure that out for? But it was an actual study that was done by the Gottman Institute. They studied, they followed 130 newlywed couples and, um, who allowed their, and the, the men who allowed their wives to influence them were, more ha- were happier and less likely to divorce. And so if you get nothing out of the message today, guys, just uh, take that home with you and that'll be of some great value and the wives can pay me later. So, um, but... When you listen to a different perspective on a situation, or when you listen to a different perspective about something, when you look at something from a different perspective, you will see it, you can see it differently. Take a look at this image that's going to come up on the screen. Um, How many of you see a young woman on this picture on the screen? Let me see your hands. How many of you see a young woman? Okay, about half the crowd. For those who can't see the young woman, this is her nose, and this is her chin right here, that's her ear right there, you know, and thing around her neck. So now you see the young woman. Yeah, so some of you see a young woman. Now, how many of you um, see the same picture, see an old hag? Okay, about half the room. The rest of you can't figure out why in the world I'm showing these pictures, you know. But so let me show you the old lady. This is her, this is her nose right here. It's her nose kind of sticking out, and this is her mouth right here, and her chin down there, and her hair there, you know. So some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about, John. So just pull it up on the internet and look at it a little bit later. But... Um, um, it's amazing that when someone gives us a different perspective of the same image or the same experience that we can view it differently. And that's the way our minds have the ability, uh, have the ability to work. And it happens not just with pictures like we just saw on the screen. It can happen with, in your job. Uh, one statement that I heard from someone recently was that I've, I've grabbed onto for a period of time is learn something from everyone. Learn something from everyone. Because everybody you meet is going to have a different perspective on whatever it is you are facing. And I think it's not only important whether you're looking at a picture, whether you're in a, in a work situation, but even in your faith journey. How often have I been absolutely convinced this is something that God wanted me to do and this is the way it should go, and then I chose to have a conversation with someone, talk to a friend, small group leader, maybe a counselor, maybe a trusted peer, maybe a spiritual director, and they said, John, have you considered this? I'm like, you know, I never really considered it from that perspective. And so this morning as we dive in, continue to look in the book of Judges, and we're going to look at some events that took place from a different perspective. And I want to tell you a little bit of why I chose the book of Judges for our study this summer. Um, last Sunday, it was two years ago that we moved into this facility. Two years ago. And um, the days of setting up and tearing down, the days of being in a, in a gym, the days of the fan in the middle of the gym, you know, going off, you know, the days of the women freezing in the sanctuary because it was blowing cold air. Some of you are like, what are you talking about, John? I'm still freezing in here, you know. Just keep your husbands away. That's why we keep it chilly in here, you know, so, um, but... You know, those memories, for some of us that experienced that, 
may seem like a distant memory, but it was just two years ago. We were doing all of those, all those things. And um, the reason I want us to dive into the book of Judges is because the book of Judges is a story about people who experienced God doing amazing things, and then they just moved past it, and they forgot. They forgot. And I thought, we're kind of getting to this point in the life of our church. We moved from the gym over to the sanctuary. We're talking about this summer and fall, expanding our parking. God is providing for us in remarkable ways. I don't want us to ever forget what God has done for us as a church. And I hope wherever you are in your faith journey, whether it's beginning, whether you've been walking with God for a short time, whether you've walked with God for a lifetime, that you never forget the amazing things that God has done in your life. And so that's why we've titled this series, Never Forget, Never Forget, because we don't want to forget the things that have happened that should have shaped, that should have shaped our lives. So last week, Tim walked us through the end of Joshua's life and the beginning part of the book of Judges. And so we just need to do a fast rewind and start all over. You say, why start all over? Tim explained it all to us in chapter 1. Why did God choose to start it all over in chapter 2? Well, chapter 1 is basically the facts. This happened and this happened and they tried to do this and they tried to do that and this didn't work and they tried this and this is what happened and this is where we ended up. Basically like your evening news, the facts, just the facts, sir. Chapter 2 looks at the same events from God's perspective. From God's perspective. So now let me tell you how God sees everything that happens. And so that's what chapter 2 is that we're going to look at this morning. Let's just go back. If, um, excuse me. If you haven't already turned in your Bibles to Judges, turn into Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. The Bible's in the racks in front of you. It's page 190. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of those or follow along your phone or tablet if you have that with you. Judges chapter 2. The Bible's in the rack. It's page 190. And so let's just go backwards just a little bit. So in Judges chapter 2, this is what Tim wrapped up with last week. God's telling the people of Israel, I brought you out of Egypt. I led you in the land. I won't break my covenant or promise with you. And you don't break your covenant with me. But you did. You disobeyed me. And God says, why did you do this? And so this is what God says. God says, I'm not going to drive them out before you, the, the foreign nations. They'll become traps and, and snares. And their gods will become your gods. And um, when he spoke all these things, the people wept loudly. Say, what's happening, John? Well, what's happening is the people of Israel were on the brink of the promised land, the land of Israel as we know it. And there were 12 tribes, the 12 sons of, the, the 10 sons of, of Jacob and the two sons of Joseph. And God said, I'm going to give each of you a portion of the land. So here's your part, and here's your part, and here's your part. That's what the end of the book of Joshua is about. He divided it all up. Everybody got their portion. And um, then he said, now I want you to go and I want you to move these people out of the land, the Canaanites who live there. And you're to settle because this is your promised land. This is the promised land. The people that were living there, they were squatters. That's what they were. And God says, time to move the squatters out. This is your promised land for you to be a part of. And so if you go back, if you weren't here with us last week, I encourage you to either listen online or go back and read chapter 1. What happened is, is they started to move the people out and they were a little bit successful, and then less successful, and then not successful at all. And then they just lived there and shared the space. And so they went from moving the people out 
Hey, how, can, we, can we have this little spot over here? Can we have this little spot? You, you stay over there, we'll stay over here. It's basically where they end up. God said, that wasn't the arrangement. You have to move them out. And we're going to talk about a little bit later why God said moving them out was so important. And so what happened when the people realized they had disobeyed God, they wept out loud and um, they offer sacrifices to God. And you're like, okay, well, maybe their hearts have changed. Maybe they'll follow after God now. Maybe that's what they'll do. Um, well, he doesn't really tell us because he goes back to Joshua dismissing the people and they were supposed to go take care of their land. And um, the people served the Lord through the lifetime of Joshua. And then Joshua, the servant of the Lord, died at age 100 and they buried him. And it goes on to say, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. So basically what's happened in the story, Joshua, who led the people into the land of promise, the land of Israel, he passed away and every one of his contemporaries, all his peers, all his friends, all the family, they all passed away. And um, the next generation takes over. And look what it says in this verse 10. It says, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Two things. Didn't know God and didn't know what God had done. Two things that they didn't know. And I found myself as I read this kind of scratching my head and say, how did they not know God and how did they not know what the Lord had done for Israel? Because unlike all, our culture where everything's written or everything's visual, they didn't have anything written in that culture. Nothing got written down. Nothing was visual for them to see. Everything was oral. You passed everything along orally. That's how you passed everything along. That's how you taught your kids. They didn't read it out of a book. They learned it from you. They didn't watch it on a screen. They learned it from you. That's how everything got passed on. So the fact that they didn't know the Lord, does that mean that the parents didn't teach the kids? I don't think that that is true because that would not be true in that culture for anything else. So somehow they knew about God. It also says that they didn't know what the Lord had done. One of the things that's true about that culture, one of the things that's true about an oral culture, is you pass along stories, you pass along history. Oral history was how our history got passed along for a long, long time before it ever got written down. So does that mean that they, they didn't ever tell them? I don't think it means that they didn't tell them. I think it means that they intentionally chose to forget. They intentionally chose to walk away from what they had heard. This is a really confusing part of this story. Um, I want to go back to this verse because there's this generation that followed after God. There's this generation that says, yes, we will serve God. Yes, we will believe in God. We watched him part the Red Sea. We watched him take care of us all throughout the desert. And their kids said, eh, I don't, I don't need any of that. I don't want any of that. It's really confusing. Really confusing. Because there was a season in the life of churches and people of faith where there was this approach that if you teach your kids the right things and you make sure your kids have the right information and if they go to the right kind of schools and they get protected from all the bad things that they'll turn out right. And it didn't happen. And so did somebody mess up? Did somebody make a mistake? What took place? What took place? And it's created a lot of guilt and a lot of confusion for people of faith when their kids choose to walk away from the God that they know and the God that they love. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
Um, God says this, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. These are commandments that I give you today to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit in the road, when you lie down, when you walk in the way. But doesn't ever say, if you do these things, then your kids will follow your God. Do you hope it happens? Absolutely. Do you pray to God that it happens? No question. No question. But this is a painful, painful story. Because you don't know if your kids are going to follow God when they live under your roof. You don't know if your kids are going to follow God even when they start to venture out. You've got to give them a few years on their own to see, is this faith theirs? Do they own this? Do they own this? You know, when I talk about this subject, I do so really cautiously because there's not a pattern to follow. There's no magic pill. Your kids will own your faith. But I think there's a couple things that are really, really important. Um, I think the first thing is that your faith is consistent. Your faith is consistent. Because the truth is your kids, especially your teens, they will spot inconsistencies like a um, beagle finds food. They will spot inconsistencies like a beagle find. In our house, man, a, she could be three floors away and she hears a piece of food hit the floor. She's down the steps, you know, a mile a minute down there to find, and she's her nose on the ground till she finds it. And that's the way students are when your faith is inconsistent, parents. When you come to church and you talk to your kids about what they should be doing and how they should live, and then... You cheat on your taxes, you badmouth the police, you talk bad, you know, you, you, you disrespect your boss, and they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, what, what's going on here? The other thing that they sniff out is, a, is hypocrites, hypocrites. You know, when they see, see you showing up here, but then when you, when you go home and the doors get shut and it seems like all hell breaks loose and you can't resolve conflict... And you don't treat one another in loving ways. You don't address hard problems. Um, and so parents, one of the things, and again, not as, a, not as a magic pill or a foolproof thing, but for you to be consistent. Another issue for you to deal with is the issue of legalism, making things black and white. Are there some things that God says should be black and white? Yes. But far too often in our parenting, we make little things big things. This is one of my struggles. And if my kids were up here, they'd be nine. Yes, Dad, you do that, you do that, you know. I struggled to not make little things big things. But pay attention to the big things. Pay attention to their heart. And let some of those little things go. And basically what God's saying to Moses, he said, what your people need to understand is there needs to be conversations about faith all the time. Not just when they show up here, or they're in, fifth, or in the studio, or the warehouse, or student ministry. But you need to talk about your your faith with your kids around the dinner table when you're riding in the car with them and after disappointments and after hard times and struggles. The last thing, parents, is you need to talk to your kids about your struggles. You need to talk to your kids about your struggles. Don't give them the impression that you've got life figured out because they know you haven't. They really do because they see you. But tell them where life is hard. Tell them when you mess up. Um, be humble in front of them. And again, I don't say these things as magic pills that are going to make your kids follow after your faith. Um, I tell parents a lot these days, 
You invest in your kids. You try to live out your faith. And you pray and pray and pray and pray. And some kids still walk away. Some walk away. And as parents, when that happens, my words to you are just to keep loving them. Don't cut them off. Don't ostracize them. You don't have to agree with their actions and choices if they're sinful. Just keep loving them right where they're at. And sometimes God in His mercy and grace will bring them back. Hopefully to you and maybe eventually to a relationship with Jesus. But this is painful, this passage where they walked away. And look what it goes on to say that they did. They did evil and they served the Baals. They forsook the Lord. They followed and worshipped all kinds of gods. They aroused His anger because they forsook Him and served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. I mean, they had seen God do unbelievable things. And they just said, no thanks. No thanks. And what they did is they, it says that, it says that they forsook the Lord. They basically said, God, we don't think you're the most important one in our lives. You see, God of the, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, is the only God that says, I want to be number one and nobody else. Exclusivity. He's the only one. Every other God, every other little G God says, well, you can, I'll, just, I'll just take a little bit of your time here. I'll just take a little bit of your money here. I'll just take a little bit of your attention here. But the God of the Bible says, no, I want you to worship me only. No one else. No one else. And one of the reasons why God said to the, to the people of Israel, I want you to drive out the Canaanites because he did not want them adopting their belief system and merging it in with their own. Say, so how could they do that? Who would worship, you know, a Baal? Who would worship that thing? You might find it a green dragon, but who would worship that thing, you know? But think about it for a moment with me, because the, the Baal, it's a, it's a word, it's kind of an umbrella word for their male version of deities, and uh, this was one of the primary ones, and it was, also, it was also primarily known as the storm god, the god of the storms, the god of the rains. Remember where they lived, the desert. And Ashtaroth was a, the name for, a female, for the female deities, the female counterpart to Baal. But think with me a moment about why they moved towards this. Remember, the Israelites were slaves for 400 years. And anybody remember what did the slaves do? They made what? They made bricks, right? They were brick makers. That's what they did for 400 years. And then they left, God rescued them, delivered them through Moses the Deliverer, and then they're out in the wilderness and they're wandering for 40 years, and the Bible says that God made sure their shoes didn't wear out and their clothes didn't wear out and they had food at their doorstep every day. And then they wandered, and the next day, food at their doorstep, and then they wandered. That's all they did for 40 years, you know. Um, and now they're brought into this land where there's houses that they didn't build, there's fields that they didn't clear and plant. There's trees that are growing with, um, with fruit on them that they did not take care of. And God says, take care of it all. Take care of it all. And I thought to myself, what would that be like? What would that be like? That would be like taking a farmer or a plumber or a mechanic or a machine operator and saying to them, 
Tomorrow you have a new job, and your new job is a computer programmer. And you have to figure out how to program this computer or your family's going to starve. That's basically what happened. Because God's no longer taking care of them. They have all this there. They're not farmers. They don't know how to farm. They've never farmed a day in their life. They were brick makers and wanderers. And now they're farmers. And is it no surprise to us that these people said, hey, I'll take whatever help I can get. Do I got to pray to that goofy storm God so maybe it'll rain in my desert little patch that's looking pretty dry here? I'll pray to that goofy storm God. Do I got to give a little bit of this to this, this Ashtaroth God? I'll give a little bit of this to the Ashtaroth God. You know, sometimes we can be really hard on the people of Israel and say, how could they worship something like that? You know, who would do something like that? But when it is between your family eating and you starving or saying, I'll give that a try. What could it hurt? And that's what they did. That's what they did. What happened? Well, as a result of that, in his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. He sold them in the hands of the enemies, and they could no longer resist. Whenever Israel would go out to fight, the Lord was against them. If you read the book of Joshua over and over again, it says the Lord was with them. They're fighting, the Lord's with them. The Lord's with them. Now the Lord is against them. And they were in great distress. The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of the raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they prostituted themselves and worshipped them. The writer of Judges does a fascinating thing because he merges this sexual distortion with faith. Not two things that normally get put in the same bucket, but in the worship of the Baals, and the worship of Ashtaroth, these two things got merged together. And this is what took place in their lives. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Um, it's a sad downward spiral that's taken place with them. Because when they said, no longer is it just going to be about the God of Israel, no longer is it going to be one God, now I'll take a little bit here, and I'll add a little bit here, and I'll merge a little bit here, and I'll mix a little bit in here, all of a sudden, they would take whatever came their direction. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of the enemy as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed them. So what would happen? What did this look like? Um, one last verse here. They, the people, when the judge died, they returned to their ways, more corrupt, following God's serving and worshiping them. The people rebelled was the first thing that would happen. Then God was angry. It was oppression by enemies. They would cry out to God. They would say, God, help us. Sometimes, not all the time, sometimes. There was salvation through a judge and then peace. And then the judge dies and starts all over again. It's like a bad movie playing over and over again. You know, and as I think about the book of Judges, um, you know, for people of faith, the book of Judges is kind of an embarrassment. I mean, if you haven't ever read this book and you start reading and you read the bizarre, weird, awful, horrific stuff that happens, you're like, why would God ever include something like this? Why would he include all this, this sordid history? Why would he put all of that there? But remember the theme of our series, never forget. Never forget. 
God does not want us to forget either who he is or what he's done. Because when that happens in our lives, we run the risk of this cycle happening over and over and over again. But this is not just something that happened to a nation. This is something that happened to people. It happened to people. I don't know about you, but I hate the fact that there are things in my life that happen over and over and over and over again that are not good. That are not good. That are um, that are unloving, that are selfish, that are sinful. And what I think the writer of Judges wants us to understand is that for us to follow after God, as we talk around, around here, for us to love God with, our, all, with everything we have, to love God fully, it's going to require on our part a daily sacrifice to say, God, is there something that's creeping into my life? Is there some little G guy that's starting to sneak into my life, weave its way into my life, sow seeds into my life, that's going to produce this happening over and over and over and over again. What are some of those gods? Or how do we allow them to creep in? Here's a couple. How about the God of sports? The God of appearance? God of health? Hobbies? Financial stability? In and of themselves, those are not bad things, are they? Appearance, health, hobbies, those are not bad things. But they can easily become gods. Because they want to share the space with the God of the heavens. They want to share the space. Let's look at the rest of the story. The Lord was angry with Israel because this nation has violated the covenant and he hasn't listened to me. I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left. I will use them to test Israel, to keep their way of the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors. The Lord allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out by giving them into their hands. So God says, I'm going to keep putting them to the test. I'm going to leave them here and regularly ask them, are you willing now to obey? Are you willing now to obey? Are you willing to obey? So they're, they're, these are the nations that the Lord left to test the Israelites who had experienced any of the wars. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given through his ancestors, through Moses. So God left them there as a test for the people. And so as God walks us back, rewinds and gives us God's perspective on this story. Where you saw in the first chapter, the people of Israel attempt to drive out these foreign nations, move them out, and for God to step in and take them to take over. And they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. And you say, what? How did that happen? I mean, they just wiped down the walls of Jericho. They, destroyed, they chased all these foreign nations away. And how did they now? It's like they're powerless. It's like their power. It's like they lost their kryptonite. And God says, this is what happened. What happened is, their kids walked away from me. And when their kids walked away from me, God says, I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to allow these other nations to come in, hopefully to draw them back to him. So I gave you the easy gods. How about some ones that are a little tougher? How about the God of control the god of control um control doesn't sound like a bad thing it's just managing life right i'm I'm managing life but how quickly does control of our kids our finances our spouse 
our risk, our pain, how quickly does that become a little G in our lives that becomes a big G and creep its way in? Here's another one. How about the God of peace? Is there anything wrong with having peace? I don't think there's anything wrong with having peace. I think maybe God's peace and our peace are different. Our peace are no conflict, no fighting, no arguments, everybody happy, everything calm, right? How many of you would like that when you leave this room and, and they come chasing you out the, out the hallway, you know, out down there? So I see the parents, they're all calm and content here. By the time they get, they walk to those doors and their kids come out, something changes in them. I'm not sure how that happens, but, you know, something changes in them. The calmness is gone, the, you know, um, but, but God's peace is not this. This isn't God's peace. God's peace is I want you to be content when there's chaos all around you. Because you know I'm in control and I'm right there with you. And you don't have to worry about making everybody happy. You don't worry having to worry about solving the world's problems. But just know that I'm here with you and we're going to get through this. Here's another one. How about the God of self-sufficiency? Self-sufficiency. This is a big one where we live here. Take care of yourself. Solve your own problems. Don't ask for help. Avoid risk unless you can manage it. How often does that creep into our faith? Instead of just worshiping God and Him alone, we now say, I'm going to take care of this part of it myself. Myself. I was talking to someone recently and they said, you know, John, as long as I can remember, since I was a little kid, I've taken care of myself, solved my own problems, paid my own way, provided everything that I need. I've never been at a place where I said, I'm just going to sit and wait until God provides. Forty-some years he's been taking care of himself. He said, on this one, I'm going to sit and wait for God to provide. Uh, that takes a pretty big step of faith. Say that this has been a God in my life, an idol in my life, something I have bowed myself down to, something I have prostituted myself to. I'm going to say, I'm going to move this out of my life because I want God to be the one that's most important to me. One last one. How about the God of problem-free living? Anybody want problem-free living? Any hands out there? Anybody? You guys are liars. You're liars. You all want problem-free living. We all do, right? We don't want the car to break down, right? We don't want the refrigerator to fail, you know. We don't want vacation plans to get messed up. We don't want to get sick when we weren't planning to get sick. Who plans to get sick? Nobody ever plans to get sick, you know. You know we all want problem-free living. That's what we want, right? Are we going to ever experience problem-free living this side of heaven? Yes or no? No. Is it possible that the pursuit of problem-free living can easily become an idol in our lives, a little G-God that we are bowing ourselves down to and making it our goal to eliminate all the problems in life? You see, it can be really easy to look at a story, and we're going to see lots of them over the next few weeks, of these judges and what was happening with the people and say, how could you? I can't believe you. Why would you? Are you kidding me? Until we take a moment and step back and look in the mirror and say, God, what's happening in my life? What's happening in my heart? What's happening in my journey? Where am I starting to allow other things to creep in, other things to come in, other things to take place 
of you being the most important one in my life. And I would love God fully over everything else. Over everything else. This is not something that happens a once and done. This is a daily challenge of us saying, I want to live for God. I want to follow God. I want my heart to be after God. Because these things are going to keep coming at you. They will not let up. They will not let up. And so as we begin looking at that picture, and I said, take a look at the picture this way. How many of you see this woman? Now take a look at the picture this way. How many of you see this woman? I want to ask you, how are you looking at your life right now? Are you just looking at the events, the facts, this is what happened, this is the way life is? Are you willing to take another look at your life and say, God, how do you view my life? Do you see? Do I put you first? Are there these little gods that are creeping in, that are mixing in the, diluting my faith, if you will? Because my challenge for you in this series is that this becomes a series where we every single week kind of put life on pause, come here together and just sit and say, God, What's happened in my life? Are you the most important person in my life? Do I love you more than anything else? Because everything around us is going to try to fight and creep in just like it did for the people of Israel. And I hope that we are stretched and grown through this experience with it this summer. I want to invite you to bow your heads and, and as you do, just take a moment and ask God, say, God, is there anything else creeping in? Or any of these little G gods that John has talked about creeping into my life. Trying to push you out. Trying to gain a foothold. God, I know when I read the book of Judges, it's easy to read it and think, how could they? Why would they? Who would do that? But when I look at the book of Judges and say, God, these are people who had you do amazing things in their lives, and you've done amazing things in my life. Um, these are people who had family members we told you about, told them about God, and I've experienced the same thing. God, what is my propensity to walk away, to drift away, to allow other things to creep in? At the end of Joshua, Joshua said to the people, Who's going to follow the God of Israel? people of Israel said, we will follow. Today we will stand and we will follow. So God, I pray that this day we will do that, but not just this day. But we'll keep doing that every day moving forward. Love you with 